Hey, podcast family. You know, we get so many varied and deep clinical questions through our Facebook page that I was discussing one of the questions with somebody in our team. Uh, and he said, you know, Hector, if this person had this question, it's a pretty good question. I'm sure others were thinking about the same thing. We should kind of put together a little list of questions that they've asked uh, and just make that an episode, kind of a you ask, we answer episode. And that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to go through some key questions here, uh, just covering three recent episodes. Or one, we're going to tackle some uh, issues on oral contraceptive, hormone levels, uh, and menopause or perimenopause, I guess I should say. Second, we're going to talk a little bit about vaginal progesterone without a history of preterm labor. Where does that fit in? We'll see. We'll tell you what that question was in a minute. Uh, and then the third one is just about a re- our most recent episode where we talked about the jade egg and some vaginal weights because uh, I had some really good questions here. Uh, so I want to tackle these three main uh, question sets over those three uh, different episodes, all right? So one we're going to tackle just briefly, uh, hormone contraception in the perimenopausal transition. We'll answer those questions. We're going to talk about vaginal progesterone without a history of preterm birth. Where does that fit in? And then we're going to tackle... Uh, this other question from our most recent episode on uh, vaginal weights. All right. So that's where we're going in this episode because you ask, we answer. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. My goodness. Well, I wish I could answer like all the questions, uh, but I can't. So we're going to do this kind of in themes, okay? I'm going to go through a couple of questions that some of you all uh, gave us on our Facebook page uh, because they honestly come in kind of like in groups. Obviously, they follow our recent episodes, but I want to start with the the first kind of batch that I've received over the last couple of days that deal with two episodes that released uh, recently on June the 4th and then June the 10th. Uh, If you remember, that's the one about our combination birth control uh, and serum levels, okay? So we did it in two episodes. And the questions that I received about that really had all the same theme, which had to do with what to do with the dosages in the perimenopausal transition and or when to stop it, all right? Now, I know it seems easy and it's pretty, you know, like, oh, I can just answer that in one sentence, but it's not. There's a lot of things to consider. And that's why I thought we should include this in an episode. So I want to start off first reading a question from one of our Facebook family members who's Allison. So Allison sent me this message. I just wrapped up your follow-up combination OCP episode and was thinking about the data on serum estradiol levels that are necessary to achieve relief from vasomotor symptoms in menopausal women. I recently had a 54-year-old patient who was still on combination OCPs, 20 micrograms microgestin, and her PCP sent her to me for ongoing refills because they were uncomfortable continuing due to the patient's age. 
The patient has a normal BMI, no hypertension, normal cholesterol, and up-to-date on preventative health care. She has tried three-month breaks from continuous birth control and continues to menstruate. I just wrapped your... I just wrapped your follow-up. I just wrapped up your follow-up. Combat. I just wrapped up your episode. I just wrapped up your follow-up. Com. I just wrapped up your follow-up combination OCP episode and was thinking about the data on serum estradiol levels that are necessary to achieve relief from vasomotor symptoms in menopausal women. I recently had a 54-year-old patient who was still on combination. I just wrapped up your episode on combine. I just wrapped up your follow-up combination OCP episode and was thinking about the data on serum estradiol levels that are necessary to achieve. I just wrapped up your follow-up combination OCP episode and was thinking about the data on serum estradiol levels that are necessary to achieve relief from vasomotor symptoms in menopausal women. I recently had a 54-year-old patient who was still on combination birth control, a 20-microgram microgestin pill, and her PCP sent her to me for ongoing refills because they were uncomfortable continuing due to the patient's age. The patient had a normal BMI, no hypertension, normal cholesterol, and up-to-date on preventative health care. She has tried three-month breaks for her combination birth control and continues to menstruate during her pill vacations. The patient has a strong desire to continue the pill because of fear of unwanted pregnancy in her 50s. Given that 20 micrograms OCPs have a serum estradiol level of around 40, is there any harm in continuing at age 54 with no other risk factors? The serum estradiol with combination OCP is sub the 60 serum estradiol therapeutic range recommended to achieve therapeutic relief from vasomotor symptoms for menopausal women. My patient and I talked about reevaluating her on a 6 to 12 month basis that's ongoing just to discuss for safety. Thank you for considering this rambling conundrum. All right, Allison, that's not rambling at all. It's a super clinically deep question. All right, podcast family, do we all get what's going on here? So she has a 54-year-old patient who's still on low-dose combination birth control pill. Actually, she's on an ultra-low dose because she's on a 20 microgram, all right? She's 54. Her PCP said, man, that's out of my scope of practice. I'm turning that over to somebody who knows women's health care. Fantastic. First of all, that's the right thing to do. So Allison, she is in good hands because she's in your hands. No BMI issues, not hypertensive, otherwise doing well. So what do you guys say? When would you stop her from using combination birth control? Well, the answer is Allison is thinking about this absolutely correct. So Allison, good for you. There's no harm in keeping her on a low-dose combination oral birth control pill because she is low-risk even at the age of 54. I'm going to explain why right after this. Well, let's boil down the question to this. At what age do you need to stop combination birth control? Now, we're going to answer this for combination birth control, but there's a special note here regarding progestin-only methods, specifically the intrauterine system like the Mirena family and Depo-Provera. So we're going to touch on that as well. But the question that Allison had had specifically to do with combination birth control. 
All right, so a couple of facts that we got to remind everybody of. One, remember that the median age of menopause in North America is about 51, but that's the median, meaning that's not the upper limit. However, by age 55, more than 95% of women would have reached and or completed the menopausal transition. So according to the International Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive Use, Quote, there is no single contraceptive choice contraindicated based on age alone, end quote. And the reason that that says that is because there's no evidence to suggest that age itself is a risk factor for contraceptive-related complications. However, with age comes an increased risk of some medical conditions like obesity and hypertension and diabetes, hyperlipidemia, or possibly even cancer. And those are independent risk factors. So Allison was thinking about this correctly. Look, I get it. She's over 40, but she's otherwise low risk. She does not have any of those age-related complications. So because of that, the International Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive Use would agree with Allison that overall combination hormonal contraception is appropriate for use in all otherwise healthy perimenopausal women up to the age of 55. You're like, well, wait a minute, Chapa, where does the 55 come in? Well, I can tell you. <laughs> Both ACOG and NAMS, that's the North American Menopause Society, recommend that women can continue contraceptive use up until the age of 55 if they desire. However, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't counsel patients correctly, all right? So while you can continue to use up to 55 if you don't have any medical contraindications, that doesn't mean it's all free go because there's some specifics here, some caveats that we need to discuss. For example, we have to tackle the issue of progestin. So if you go back and listen to the original episode, remember we said that the complications aren't just the dose of estrogen, but there seems to be this synergy with the type and dose of progestin as well. So in patients over 40, the use of combination birth control, we have to take a look at the type of progestin. That's an important thing to consider. This was also covered by the FSRH. Like, what the heck is that? Well, like an app, there's a society for everything. So the FSRH, you can actually find their data online. They're a great source of professionals. They deal specifically with reproductive and sexual health, and therefore they're called the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health Care. That's the FSRH, FSRH. Well, the FSRH states, quote, combination oral contraception with levonorgestrel or norethindrone should be considered first-line combination oral contraceptive preparations for women over 40 due to the potentially, and that's underlined, potentially lower VTE risk compared to formulations containing other progestins. They continue in saying, combination oral contraceptives with under 30 micrograms of ethnyl estradiol should be considered first-line preparations for women over 40 due to the, again, underlined potentially lower risk of VTE, cardiovascular disease, and stroke compared to formulations containing higher doses of estrogen. End quote. All right, so do we all get that? So that's from the FSRH, which basically says, look, over 40, knock yourself out. They have no medical contraindications. It's just fine. But pay attention to the type of progestin. Remember that more advanced generations of progestin, while less androgenic, potentially, potentially in some but not all studies, could have increased relative risk of VTE. 
All right. So sticking with the younger generations like levonorgestrel or norethindrone with a lower dose of ethanol estradiol, uh, which is under 30 micrograms, according to the FSRH, those should be considered first line for oral contraceptive preparations. Oh, and remember this podcast, family. Here's the big catch with progestins, okay? Because we said we had to talk about progestin-only methods. So that's our segue into progestin uh, topics over the age of 40, progestin options, all right? Uh, The first thing is that even though there's no age limit for Depo-Provera, because it can make you hypoestrogenemic and potentially have some bone mineral density effects, in women who are over 40 and are still on Depo-Provera, it should at least have a conversation about other methods of birth control because of the potential negative effect on bone mineral density, all right? That is something that the FSRH also states. They state, quote, women over 40 using depomidroxyprogesterone acetate should be reviewed regularly to assess the benefits and risks of use. Women over 50 should be counseled on alternative methods of contraception, end quote. So just me personally, I've, I feel that in patients that are over 45, that's a great time to discuss with them things like progestin-releasing uh, intrauterine systems, IUSs. Look, it covers you for up to eight years. I can carry you into the menopausal transition. And more importantly, should they develop hot flash uh, symptoms, they already have endometrial protection should they require a transdermal estrogen therapy. That way, you only have to do estrogen replacement therapy as opposed to estrogen and progestin therapy that in some studies has been linked to more adverse issues, all right? So me personally and women over 45, I do try to talk to them about a a progestin-releasing IUS because there they also have endometrial protection. And if they develop hot flashes, then we can try to do uh, systemic therapy. So that's an option. But again, that's just what I do. But as Allison had a specific question about use of combination birth control over the age of 50, yes, as long as they maintain no medical contraindication, ACOG and NAM say it's perfectly fine up to the age of 55 if that's what the patient wants to do. Now, for those of you that are cringing at that because that makes you uncomfortable, I get it. I get it. I've been there. (laughs) But I've let the data kind of sink in and kind of, you know, mull around in the brain. uh, And I get it. And it is very safe. So if you're thinking, wait a minute, man. What about like breast cancer risk or VTE risk? Well, let's address that right now because breast cancer is a fear, right? I mean, you can give these women prolonged uh, synthetic estrogens. Well, the truth is there's little evidence regarding combination hormone contraceptive use in breast cancer, specifically to women over the age of 40 who continue using the pill. The increased risk is mainly age-related in and of itself. Remember that the risk of developing breast cancer at age 35 is about 1 in 500, and it's 1 in 100 at age 40. Studies with older combination birth control formulations that were higher dose, meaning greater than 35 micrograms, found a slightly increased risk of breast cancer, but the relative risk still crossed one. It was about 1.24 to 1.3, and that declined generally after cessation of the medication. However, there was no significant risk of breast cancer after 10 years of non-use. But now, with the use of these low-dose pills under 35 micrograms, this risk does not seem to exist or to be minimal at most and does not seem to be any greater than the normal age-related risk of breast cancer. So that's based on the evidence, all right? So is there a risk of breast cancer as you get older? Yes. But the use of combination birth control does not seem to add to that anymore. 
And since we're talking about risks, let's just briefly touch on VTE risk or MI risk uh, in patients over 40 on these medications, all right? According to the data, there does not seem to be an interaction between hormonal contraception and increasing age compared with baseline age-related risk, all right? So the risk is, again, just like with breast cancer, seems to be age-dependent. As long as there's no other medical comorbidities, it does not seem that combination oral birth control seems to augment that risk. And the same goes for MI. That's why the CDC does not include age as a standalone independent contraindication. The contraindications are due to those medical comorbidities that typically go with age. So once again, VTE risk, MI risk, breast cancer risk, those are all age-dependent risk factors that do not seem to be increased anymore by the use of combination birth control in the general population. Oh, my goodness. You see how it's not so easy as, yes, it's fine until the age of 55. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's true. But you have to know all of the other details in that. So I hope you found that helpful. That brings us to our second question that's in that same line, in the same vein uh, that Allison had. So this comes from Haley. Haley wrote the following question. Your two recent podcasts on combination birth control and serum estradiol levels prompted another clinical dilemma that I have. For my folks going through the menopausal transition and are plagued by either vasomotor symptoms uh, with or without irregular bleeding, I offer a low-dose combined oral contraceptive pill. However, I struggle with knowing when they are no longer required contraceptive doses of hormones and can move to hormone therapy. I typically recommend to the patient that we do a trial discontinuation of the birth control pill at 51 to 52 years old and then don't know if it's truly safe to put them on a non-contraceptive dose if they have not yet met formal definition of amenorrhea for 12 months and testing FSH, LH, and estradiol is not diagnostic. My mother got pregnant at 42 because it would be very unlikely for her to conceive. Famous last words, right? So in short, my question is, how can I be certain that my 51-year-old or 52-year-old patient who has recently discontinued contraception and is still having bothersome vasomotor symptoms can safely be switched to a non-contraceptive dose of HRT without fear of fertility? I mean, is that real world or what? That's a great question. And that's why I wanted to get these out there because I think we can all learn from these. These are fantastic and and these are complicated issues. So as I mentioned, it's in the same vein as that first question, right? Dealing with the menopausal transition. And so the first answer is you can absolutely continue to use birth control up until the age of 55. So that's the easiest answer. Just keep them on it as long as there's no medical contraindications and continue until the patient wants uh, to stop or till age 55. That's definitely an option. However, remember that while birth control pills suppress the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis so that FSH, LH, and estradiol are just not valid, if the patient is on an intrauterine uh, system like a Mirena, then serum FSH uh, is unaffected and to a lesser degree estradiol because remember that the uh, effect on ovulation by a Mirena or an intrauterine system isn't at the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. It's more local uh, as a luteinizing effect on the ovary. 
so on patients that have a Mirena in place, you can definitely still check an FSH uh, and an estradiol, though estradiol may be not as reliable, but an FSH is still legit. Uh, or you can continue the patient on a low-dose uh, contraceptive agent until the age of 55. Remember, it is considered uh, best practice over the age of 40 to use that lower dose of, of estrogen, of ethanol estradiol, defined as less than 30, ideally an ultra-low dose, like a 20-microgram pill. Uh, and if the patient then develops a hot flashes because they are under the, the serum level uh, that's sufficient to relieve vasomotor symptoms, then you can bump them back up either to a 25 or a 30 microgram pill. But the goal is to try to stay under the 35 micrograms as a theoretical benefit in women over 40. So the short answer is uh, you cannot check FSH or estradiol on combination birth control pills because the axis is suppressed, but you can still check them uh, with an intrauterine system in place. And if they uh, want to, and if they comply, of course, you got to make sure that they're not at risk for pregnancy. They got to use a backup uh, barrier method like condoms or spermicide or Fexi or something else. You can give them a, a six-week a vacation off the birth control pill. And then after six weeks, you can check uh, their serum FSH and estradiol to see where they're at, all right? Six weeks is the quickest. Some people use eight weeks, but I hate to leave them uh, that uh, length of time unprotected. So the short answer is if they're on combination birth control pills, they'd have to take a pill holiday and then check an FSH and estradiol after they've had some time of, of recuperation of the hypothalamic uh, pituitary ovarian axis uh, or just keep them on it until the age of 55. All right, I think we've killed that horse sufficiently. But that brings us to our third and final answer on this topic, which comes from Lena. Lena wrote, Good afternoon, Dr. Chapa. I'd like to know if you would be able to provide me with some help. I have heard different approaches in regards to assessing ovulatory function on a patient with Mirena. I had a patient who is 55 due for Mirena removal after eight years. Patient has not had menses since the IUD was inserted and there's no vasomotor symptoms. The patient wants to know if she needs to be on any other form of contraception and how soon after Mirena removal can FSH and estradiol be checked. Now, podcast family. Before I answer that, do you see how these things are so similar? Is that wild or what? Which means, look, we all have like one mindset. Is that wild or what? Three different people, different locations, but similar questions. Y'all get that? See, we're not that different after all. And the short answer that I explained to Lena, as we already discussed, is, hey, if she's 55, she's good. The chance of her ovulating and getting pregnant are almost zero, right? In medicine, we never say zero percent. But man, I mean, you're pretty much good. Uh, and because Mirena does not affect FSH, as we discussed, you can get an FSH check even with the device in place. But just to be sure, if she really wants to know without any suppression, then I would just wait four weeks and check her because at 55, her FSH is probably elevated anyway. Uh, so you can't use amenorrhea in her because she's had no period for a long time. Uh, with her Mirena. So the truth is at 55, she's pretty much done. But if she wants to prove it, get an FSH whenever you like. Now, before we leave this grouping, this category of questions about serum hormone levels and the perimenopausal transition, I have one that's not technically about perimenopause uh, and or the menopausal transition, but there is a good one that came from Jessica in this same category, all right? So listen to this because I'm sure others had the same question. Jessica writes, I recently listened to the combo birth control and serum 
estradiol part one. And I'll tell you, I feel that I definitely had the estrogen levels and OCP backwards. I was under the impression that for teens, we needed the lower dose. After listening to your podcast, it made so much more sense as to why the healthy teens might benefit from higher estrogen level OCPs. I actually prescribed one of my teens higher level estrogen OCPs yesterday and told her why. This morning, I listened to part two, and I'll probably need to listen to that again. But question, what is the efficacy for low-dose oral contraceptive pills on women greater than 35 years in regards to contraception? Jessica, I totally get it. I don't think we get enough, really, of this REI kind of background, basic science slash pharmacology in residency. I mean, we don't. We get some of it, but but we really have to kind of make a conscious effort to kind of go through the numbers, right? Uh, so the first thing is, yes, you're definitely right. In the adolescent patient, they need the standard dose birth control of like a 30 microgram pill, unless there's other issues going on, right? Uh, and then in women over 35, yes, the lower dose options or the ultra low dose is preferred, especially over the age of 40. But your question regarding the efficacy uh, of this ultra low dose birth control in women over 35, uh, that's an easy answer. There's no decrease in efficacy. And the reason is, remember, it's not the dose of estrogen at all. It has to do with the progestin. Remember that oral birth control, the main driver of contraception is the progestin component. That's why there's progestin-only birth control, but no estrogen-only birth control. The estrogen is added in there, yes, as a little bit extra in suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, but it's not crucial for contraceptive efficacy. That's the progestin's job. Estrogen is also added to try to minimize some of the progestin-only side effects, mainly the abnormal bleeding. That's why the estrogen is in there. But the contraceptive efficacy is not tied to the estrogen dose uh, in women over 35 or 40. Uh, It's tied to their compliance. So with oral birth control, of course, they've got to take it more or less same time every day. Uh, So that's the short answer is there's no decrease in efficacy in women over 35 with a lower dose pill because it's not the estrogen's job to give them birth control. That's the progestin's job. The estrogen is give that little extra little boost of contraceptive effectiveness and to help maintain uh, some of the bothersome side effects. Oh, and by the way, I am not recording this in our typical podcast area. I've got my handy-dandy portable mic. I've got our little surround sound absorbers that I stick around the room because uh, I'm still in clinic. Uh, it's like 6 p.m. I finished the day. I'm still doing some charts. Uh, but I call the team. I'm like, I don't have the strength to go meet you. I'm doing this thing here. They hate when I do this, by the way. So shout out to the team. Thank you for editing this, trying to take down some of the background noise that I'm sure is on there. But anyway, you guys are the best. Let's get on to our second set of questions. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
All right, podcast family, the good news is that these next questions are really quick uh, and they're short answer because that was a lot to cover with the REI hormone stuff, right? But I hope you found that helpful. I mean, send me a message if you did. I'm sure somebody else has similar questions like this. I found that so interesting that they're more or less kind of thinking about the same thing and again, coming from all different parts of the country. So thank you for sending in your those questions. This is how we all learn. This is how we all grow together. All right, the second question has to do with the recent... Uh, uh, April 13 episode about vaginal progesterone. So in that, we talked about vaginal progesterone and the role of cerclage according to SMFM. Well, the question came in uh, from Jay, that's J-A-Y, and Jay says the following. Hey, Dr. Jabba, thanks for your recent episode on cerclage and vaginal progesterone. I get that in the history of a patient with previous preterm birth. But what about the use of vaginal progesterone without a prior preterm birth history? Is that valid? Well, that's a great question, Jay. Let's go through the data. All right, let's make this quick because I think we are getting a little progesterone fatigued out, all right? So the short of it is there's very, very uh, sparse data regarding the efficacy of vaginal progesterone when the cervical length is greater than 25. Like, meh, yeah, it probably doesn't do anything. But in those with a history of preterm birth and a cervical length under 25, as we mentioned in the other episode, then either cerclage or progesterone can be used because they are almost comparable, it looks like, uh, in their uh, effectiveness to prevent uh, preterm birth, all right? That's in a patient with a history of preterm birth. But in a patient without a history of preterm birth, assuming they have a singleton, right? That's the catch. So a singleton, no previous history of preterm birth with the incidentally noted short cervix of 25 millimeters or less, while SMFM does not include that in their discussion, in their rebuttal that just came out uh, in the AJOG, uh, it is stated in ACOG. So in ACOG's statement to the FDA in response for a practice, they do still list singleton pregnancy, no previous preterm birth that's found to have the incidentally noted short cervix of 25 millimeters or less, then vaginal progesterone is still there as a consideration, all right? So just short of it is short cervix under 25, short of it is, that's funny, huh? Anyway, the catch is uh, at cervixes under 25 millimeters uh, with or without a history of preterm birth, then vaginal progesterone can be can be considered. Of course, we have to tell the patient it's unclear uh, if this really works. The efficacy is just overall very poor. But if there's some efficacy, it may be there. That's a lot of qualifiers. It may be there for those with the cervix under 25 millimeters in total length. And moving on, because I'm starting to hear weird noises in the office by myself. All right, last question has to do with our most recent episode, uh, which was on the jade egg and the vaginal weights. Let's get to that next. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
All right, we got a question from Janelle, and Janelle said, Hey, Dr. Choppa, I just heard your recent podcast on the jade egg and vaginal weights. In that episode, you mentioned that incorrect use of vaginal weights could lead to vaginismus. But I remember learning something about vaginal dilators being used for vaginismus. Is that the same thing, or am I confusing these? Could you clarify between these two items, please? All right, so once again, this was based on our recent April 16 release. That was just yesterday. And you are definitely correct. There is something there with vaginal dilators and vaginismus. So let let me just set the stage here. The use of these vaginal weights uh, used inappropriately, right? So continuous contraction uh, could develop some pelvic floor hypertonicity. We just discussed that in yesterday's release. And that potentially, not that it has, right? But potentially, at least in theory, uh, could lead uh, to some pelvic floor dysfunction like vaginismus. But you're totally right. If there's a patient with an already known diagnosis of vaginismus, then yes, one of the medically approved therapies are to use medically approved and medical grade dilators to gently uh, open and relax uh, the introitus and the pelvic floor uh, with progressive dilators. So progressive use of medical grade dilators is very different than this issue of progressive vaginal weights, all right? One is medically indicated and done under two provision. The other is used for, you know, vaginal training uh, for better sex and incontinence. Uh, That latter has no evidence, but (laughs) vaginal dilators does have evidence. So slowly progressive with the use of lubrication, the use of vaginal dilators can definitely be beneficial for patients with vaginismus. By the way, in an unrelated note, others have asked, well, can they just use a vibrator for that? No. <laughs> if you have vaginismus, you don't want to do that because that can actually trigger uh, more pelvic floor contractions. So the, the purpose of vaginal dilators that are medically guided uh, or directed is, is for therapy, not for pleasure. All right. Now, if they get pleasure from that, that's fine. That's an added bonus, but that's not its goal, right? So just to be clear, vaginal uh, vibrators are not the same thing as vaginal dilators used for vaginismus. So absolutely correct. There is a role for progressive use of vaginal dilators for established vaginismus, but that's totally different than the whole weights uh, being used inside the vagina. Remember that the vagina is not meant to be a weightlifter. By the way, this had nothing to do uh, with uh, vaginal toys uh, for pleasure. That's for entertainment purposes, right? So clitoral stimulators, va- uh, uh, use of vibrators, I, I think those are great tools, ancillary aids, either for self-exploration or for a couple play. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the purpose of the episode uh, from April the 16th. The April 16th was when people market those intravaginal devices as a way to tone the pelvic floor, especially when it's just for sexual intimacy because there's no benefit of using that over Kegels by themselves. So again, to be clear, Kegels definitely work. There is a place for that. Vaginal dilators work. There's a place for that, but not for this whole concept of progressive vaginal weights uh, that's not really evidence-based. And as I mentioned in the episode yesterday, there can be a role for some devices that provide some biofeedback just as instructions so that you can, so patients can know what what muscles are contracting. Uh, But again, I'm not endorsing any specific brand or device itself. I just think that in, in the appropriate directed way, some of those devices may have value, but progressive weights in the vagina, uh, no go there.
All right, podcast family, I am wrapping this up. I'm going to send this to our team and hopefully they can make this sound like I'm not doing it from our office. But nonetheless, that's life. As always, we thank you for your questions. We thank you for being part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.